We started the series in my home county of Herefordshire, a place full of love, happy memories and beauty. It wasn't the most obvious place to begin this journey, but it helped us to understand why we're embarking on it and how all of us in the UK are closer to Britain's slaving past than we think. This series was made entirely during the global COVID-19 pandemic. And if you lived in Britain, one of the most contentious points was whether you could go for a pint with your friends or not. At every stage of lockdown, the first thing the government would announce was whether the pubs were opening. Pub culture, for so many people, is an integral part of what it means to be British. But does this tradition of socialising and drinking in your local watering hole have links to the enslavement of African men and women? I'm Moya Lodi McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. At 19 years of age, in 1799, Benjamin Green founded Green Brewery in the Suffolk market town of Bury St Edmunds. After founding the Bury, Benjamin gave it to his son Edward in 1836 and went on to own sugar plantations in the Caribbean, where he also owned slaves. Even for the 1800s, Benjamin's views on slavery were pretty extreme, to the point where he expressed views opposing those campaigning for the abolition of slavery in his own newspaper column. Benjamin's son, Edward, went on to grow the brewery business with mergers and partnerships, and the company began to become more recognisable as the brand and brewery seen today. This is the story occupying the opening paragraphs of the Our History page on Green King Brewery's website. The information is there, but the order in which the story is told says something about the way British history can be interpreted when it comes to its connections with slavery. We know slavery was abolished in 1833. The story you just heard only talks about Benjamin Green's views on abolition and those campaigning for it after he had passed the brew to his son in 1836, three years after abolition. It's a classic sleight of hand, where you acknowledge the past but distance yourself from it. Something we've encountered a lot with the stories we've heard during the series. My first book was called Incivility. It uses taverns as a lens through which to understand how colonists tried to order society and how it didn't work out the way they hoped it would. But I've also done work on enslaved Africans in the West Indies and also um, enslaved Africans in the South and how their production of rum is connected to larger commodity networks. And also in my book, I look a lot at taverns and how enslaved peoples, free and enslaved Black people, work in that space in society at large. This is Vaughan Scribner, an Associate Professor of History at the Central University of Arkansas. With Vaughan's knowledge of taverns, I wanted to know what he could tell us about the Green King pub chain and brewery. This chain of pubs, they have a deep root in enslavement. And here's the thing. To understand the British Empire and to understand London's place in the British Empire, you have to go back to chattel slavery. There's no getting around this. And this is something that I think citizens of both the UK and America are having a really hard time coming to terms with. So the Green family had investments in sugar plantations in the West Indies, the West Indies were a hell on earth. I have quotes basically 
saying that there's no worse life than cutting the sugar out in the fields. The sugar fields, the average lifespan of a enslaved person was about two years, but the owners didn't care because if one of their enslaved people died, they just buy more because these were such cash cows. So almost any business that you're going to find in the 18th century had intentional or unintentional connections to this massive system of shadow slavery, the enslavement of African and eventually African-American peoples. And it's something that we have to delve into. You need to understand the roots of this to understand our current society that we're in. These tavern spaces, like, like the Green family's taverns, they were wholly predicated on the products of these enslaved peoples. And in this case, they are buying into it because it cuts their bottom line out and they can make more of a profit. And these were businesses. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, this isn't me saying the Green family were some horrible people because they did this. It's that this was such an institution still. And I told this to my students a lot. It's not our jobs as historians to judge people in the past with our present day morals. So for instance, when we started this, you know, I have Apple AirPods in and I have an iPhone next to me. Well, the rare earth minerals that they use, the materials they use for the batteries are oftentimes products of modern day slavery. We don't think about it, though. We disconnect ourselves with that, just as people in the 18th century did. People who are consuming this rum in taverns, most of them probably have a distant understanding that this is produced by enslaved peoples, but that's uncomfortable. They don't want to think about that. So they disassociate themselves from the peoples who are creating this. Disassociating is unfortunately something we're all guilty of. And Vaughan's use of AirPods is a great example. As Enzo discussed in a sour taste, our episode about chocolate, we all vote with our wallets. Green King is a good chain to dive into because out of all the pubs, they've spoken openly about their slavery links and in 2020 made an undisclosed donation to support the National Museum Liverpool's Black History Month programming, while also announcing a partnership with Liverpool's International Slavery Museum. Green King CEO Nick McKenzie said that it was, it was inexcusable that one of our founders profited from slavery. And while it was nearly 200 years ago, we can't pretend it didn't happen. We want to educate and work with the International Slavery Museum, learn more about the past and better inform our choices for the future. During our interview with Dr Richard Benjamin from the ISM, we spoke about this newly announced partnership. It kind of came about after Green King themselves had kind of publicly announced that they had looked into it. I think Lloyds Bank made uh, some, another statement at the same time, which is a long time coming. And look at all the companies that, that still aren't at that place and whether that be a bank or governments, you know, I mean, we know there's a lot of discussions ongoing. It's something that should have happened early, but hey-ho, we are where we are. So when they had made that announcement, we did approach them and said, look, you've made the announcement. Have you got any ideas what you think you would like to do to move forward as a company? And we were very kind of open and honest with them that we thought it might be a positive move if they looked at working with us and possibly funded some of our education programmes with young people. That was literally our starting point. And so it was kind of like, okay, what are you willing to do? In the statement that was released, I did ask that we include the term reparatory justice and that this was something we felt was part of that. 
it's the kind of thing that, you know, the relationship between the University of the West Indies and Sir Hilary Beckles and their relationship now with the University of, of Glasgow, I believe, and there's a research centre being developed, you know, that's part of reparative justice as well. And what is, what's the response been like? It's been very positive. I think the most interesting responses have been internally at Green King. And we have had reports from those individuals who were working with us on the discussions that it has brought about for their workforce. And on the whole, that has been very positive. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. So the modern-day Green King is grappling with their past. But let's go back to their founder, Benjamin King. Here's what I'll tell you. I think he is a lens, a microcosm for this larger culture that's going on with pubs throughout the early modern Atlantic world. And that's what you have to understand with these taverns. Their ultimate goal was to make a profit. And he was going to do whatever he had to, basically, to make that profit. And if it meant for him getting entangled in the slave trade and the slave products, that was an option for him. Because these plantations were doing really well. It's no coincidence that when France lost the French and Indian War, the, the Seven Years' War, and Great Britain took all their land in North America... They made sure they kept Saint-Domingue, which eventually becomes Haiti, a tiny little island out in the West Indies, because they were making so much money off of this sugar that they were producing there. So he buys into this blossoming, not just blossoming, but booming network. It's also no coincidence that when the Americans, who were technically traitors, revolt against the British Empire, the West Indies Americans did not do so. They stuck with the British Empire because they were saying, well, we're making too much money here. We're happy with how things are going. He's trying to make money, diversify kind of this proto-capitalism any way that he possibly can. And the West Indies are a key part of this. They were a key part of the early British Empire. And that way he was shrewd. But of course, looking back on it, it's also a very dark side of this tavern trade that's going on in British society at large. Capitalism rears its head again. And making money was a clear driving force of Benjamin Green. Yet on a societal level, I want to know more about the significance of pubs in the 1800s. What did they mean to the people on the ground? You know, there's this traditional idea of these public houses where people come in and there's spaces of relaxation after a hard day's work. It was very much not that. Taverns, they were the most accessible diverse and numerous spaces in the early modern British Empire. I would argue that they really served as microcosms of not just leaders' ideas of how the British Empire should be, 
but more importantly, how it really was. You have these taverns that are becoming more diverse for a more diverse set of customers. You could have an elite city tavern or coffee house where you're going to have more likely upper class people in there. In fact, they called coffee houses penny universities because you paid a penny to get in. And then they were these kind of more highbrow spaces. But three businesses down, you'd have an ale house where you have poor whites, poor black people, women. Taverns were supposed to be these masculine spaces, ideally, you know, in leaders' minds. But it wasn't that simple either. You did have women attending taverns, especially in London. But here's where you get the contradictions coming in. Men wanted women out of the tavern unless they were as workers. So you have women running taverns. You have them serving men in taverns. You have prostitution booming in taverns. And then if you go across the Atlantic, you have enslaved people working in taverns. So they aren't expected to be there as customers, but they're expected to serve in these tavern spaces. And you have everything going on in taverns from, like I said, in these penny universities where you have men coming in to get the news, to debate in what they call gentlemen's clubs. But then you have cockfights breaking out, humans fighting each other, illicit trade, black market goods. They were a grocery store, a bank, really, you name it. They were like the internet today in this one spot. They're so lucrative from a historian's viewpoint. They're like the internet. Wow. Pubs were this hive of activity where wrongs could be set right or wrong again and goods traded. While all this wheeling and dealing, class division, socialising was taking place in these central community hubs, how much were people actually drinking? People in the 18th and 19th century drank a ton of alcohol at home and in taverns. The average colonist drank somewhere around seven shots of hard alcohol a day, in addition to cider and beer. So that's every day. When Benjamin Franklin moved over to London for a while in the early 18th century as a young man, he was astonished at how these laborers he worked with in the printing trade drank all throughout the day and drank and saying, what are you doing? Well, they didn't trust water. This is something else I study a lot is conceptions of water in the 18th century, but they didn't trust water. Uh, you kind of have these spas coming about, these mineral springs, but you don't want to drink that very often either. In fact, doctor said you shouldn't. So you have these alcoholic beverages made very available. How did taverns develop and grow in line with plantation societies? We know for Britain, sugar and cocoa plantations were extremely lucrative. So of course, business owners were investing in them. And this is true of tavern owners also. Rum was one of the most popular beverages. We can directly link rum punch to this plantation network. So rum punch consisted of five ingredients, rum, sugar, water, spices from the East Indies, and then citrus fruits. When you dive into tavern ledgers in the 18th and 19th century, it was not the most popular beverages that tavern owners are selling because it's A, it's highly alcoholic. B, it can be a communal drink, so you can buy this big bowl of rum punch and share it with your friends. And you definitely have, it's growing in popularity because it's cheap and it's so ubiquitous. Now, of course, you're going to have gin come in as well, and they have to tamper that down. But I would argue that this plantation society fuels this tavern rum punch and vice versa. It becomes a circular thing. Another good primary source from this is The Spectator, which was a London-based periodical in the 18th century, it ran this, this story, this kind of anecdote in the early 18th century, where two guys are sitting at a bar, of course, in the UK, sharing a rum punch. And one of them is 
railing on about how this foreign trade is going to be the end of the empire. We get everything from abroad now. We didn't make things at home again. And his friend said, well, it's funny you mentioned that because you're really enjoying this bowl of rum punch, but everything but the water in that is a foreigner. So you have these taverns bringing in these plantation networks and these taverns becoming centers of really this global trade. And you see the rum as a core constituent of this, rum and sugar, both of which are produced in the West Indies. We know how much the Brits love their sugar. And so I would argue that, yes, this boom in the plantation trade directly fuels and is fueled by this growing tavern sector. There's no getting around it. So how do these owners keep up with their ever-diversifying clientele? You also have the, you know, the rise of the coffee house, for instance, where you have tavern keepers start to also open a coffee house where they serve coffee instead of alcohol or both. And you have these kind of brand names starting to come out. So you'll have like coffee houses, chocolate houses, city taverns, public houses, ale houses, and they all have these different connotations. So you very well could have a tavern owner own an ale house with the lower sources, they call it, and a coffee house for the elites. They're diversifying their businesses for a diverse set of customers. So something like chocolate tea initially, sugar initially. I mean, Queen Elizabeth famously loved her sugar and it brought her teeth out. These exotic products were more for the elites because they were the ones who could afford them. They're able to use these goods as a marker of their supposed superiority. Now, what starts to scare the elites throughout the British Empire, though, is that as the lower sorts, as they call them, as the slave trade grows and they're able to produce more of these goods, their price goes down. So now ordinary people are able to indulge in these goods to where they wouldn't have been earlier. And elites say, like, how are we going to separate ourselves from these people? And that's why they like to say, like, well, lower class people, they can't handle their liquor like we can. They drink rum straight. We're more refined. We drink cocktails. We don't do shots like they do if we can modern parlance. They're always trying to differentiate themselves in this way. But at the end of the day, they're all drinking the same thing. They all love their rum. They love the exoticness of it. They like the ceremony, toasts that go along with it. And these can be very exclusionary things. So if you're an elite in a tavern and you think, well, this kind of lower class group over here, we don't want to associate with them. They'll do a toast that the lower classes can't understand. It's this ritualistic thing or, or songs. And so that excludes them right there. Thinking about the legacy of pubs today, I wondered what kind of hangover still clouds the industry from the past. That separation between the products being consumed from their brutal creation. I think also about the pubs I've been to and the brands that have become household names in the UK. And I've only ever come across one pub owned by a black Brit. When we talk about this idea, this bastion of British culture, whatever that means, oftentimes it's a very whitewashed idea. And that goes right back to the 18th century when you have this small group of elites trying to dictate what it meant to be British. And British culture was, I would say, almost always, it was about creating the other. So to have your identity, you have to create someone else. So the other was Black people, Catholics, French people. And so it becomes this very exclusionary idea. But that's baked into... British and American identity, what does it mean to be British? Well, it means you're white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And that goes back to the 18th century when you have this strict hierarchy and the British Empire is founded upon difference and exclusion. The British Empire, the first British Empire's power and this idea of democracy 
and liberty was built on the backs of enslaved peoples. Britons love to go to their taverns and toast to British liberty and, you know, we have a limited monarch and we're great, but it was mostly white men who were drinking rum produced by enslaved peoples in spaces that were exclusionary. And so you still have that contradiction. The 18th century and the 19th century, it wasn't that long ago. There's still all these underlying foundations that we're still fighting against. I spent a lot of time in the UK in pubs, you know, primary research, of course. I've never seen a black pub owner. I think pubs are can be very diverse spaces in who attends them. But as far as ownership, that's a great point. And that goes right back to the 18th and 19th centuries. How do we reconcile this, our classic ideas of what the pub and the tavern is, especially during this period, and actually connect it to the context it was operating in? In the UK and in America right now, we're having a lot of name changes. Okay, you have to use it as a learning experience. I guess that's the biggest thing. So you can go into a green-owned tavern and still enjoy your drink or your food, but you need to be aware of what's going on. So for instance, like you said, oh, this place, why is it all white ownership? Where does that go back to? How can we start to think about that and inform ourselves? Because I think today with this information age we're in, everyone thinks they're an expert on everything. You can Google something, you read one source and you get angry and you just cancel it. It's all about awareness and educating yourself and trying to find some kind of a connection or an empathy with the past where you say, all right, the Green family did this. This is objectively wrong. But what does them doing this, what does that tell us about our past and how does that still inform our present? People haven't changed the world we live in has. People weren't as different as we think they were in the 18th century. In 200 years, someone's going to be having a podcast or who knows what they'll have then. They're going to be judging us for a lot of the things we do right now. We still have modern forms of slavery. It's all about educating yourself. It's easy to just have your gut reaction and say, cancel it, close it, that's it, we're going to make that go away. But if you just make it go away, you haven't really changed anything or improved everything. The, the name's gone or something like that, but if people don't understand why it's gone or what happened, then we haven't made any headway. Everything's more complicated. It's not black and white. And there's no simple answer to anything. Go into the pub. Think about its origins in our modern-day identity for better and for worse. But the only way that we're going to make strides forward is to bridge that gap and have conversations about uncomfortable subjects like this, because otherwise there's no improvement to be made. I think that then as now a place like the pub's a great place to do it, sit down with a tea or a coffee or a pint and think about these things and talk about them. I like this idea of going to a place and discussing its past, particularly with pubs like them or loathe them. They are a key part of our social habits. So I asked Vaughan for a pub he would recommend we go to and have one of these conversations. Actually, it's called the Adam and Eve. It's right by Norwich Cathedral. It's from the 13th century. It has hardly changed. It was built. It was for the workers who built the cathedral. It's a delightful pub. I love it. I couldn't recommend it more. That's my probably my favourite pub in the UK. And I'll recommend the Prince of Peckham in London. It's the one Black-owned pub I know, and it serves amazing food and is the perfect place for rum cocktails and dancing the night away with friends.
Human Resources was produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz. Flute, Sean Herbert. Extra sound recordings, Sandra Dobbozemski with Jay Hope on the violin. Our production assistant is Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>